Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. Would you like to support a truly independent voice? Would you consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletters for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Isabel Archer, Senior Researcher, Labor and Migrant Worker Rights at the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. The center has just released a report on the treatment of migrant workers in Qatar during the Football World Cup. Isabel, welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. Thank you. Before we get into the details of your report on the exploitation of migrants during the Doha World Cup, can you just give our listeners a snapshot of the Business and Human Rights Center, who you are and what you do? Of course. So we are a global organization at the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. So we have colleagues all over the world, all working towards eradicating human rights abuse in business. And we work in a few different ways, but we have three main aims. First, to build corporate transparency. So we maintain a digital platform through our website, which tracks human rights performance and policies and practices of over 10,000 companies. Uh, We also seek to strengthen corporate accountability. So we take up allegations of human rights abuse directly to companies uh, which are implicated in cases of of alleged abuse. And we hold them accountable for the, the harms that are caused through their operations and supply chains. And that's something that really most companies do appreciate. We do have a, a fairly good success rate at getting responses from companies um, who appreciate the fact that we offer that platform. And we can also facilitate sort of dialogues between different groups in that way. And then thirdly, most importantly, we work very closely with grassroots groups and local communities. We're lucky to be supported by a team of regional researchers who work on the ground in their regions to raise local concerns with policymakers at national and international levels on a a whole range of business and human rights issues. But we do have just a few sort of focus areas, uh, which include labour rights and the rights of workers in global supply chains, the responsible use of natural resources, particularly in relation to the transition to low carbon economies. And then we also look at the intersection of technology and human rights, particularly sort of emerging technologies like AI and automation. So we work with a very broad range of stakeholders, everyone from activists and academics uh, to business people and rights holders to further human rights. And when you contact these companies, you said you get a pretty good uh success rate in terms of response are they are they surprised do they know what they're doing and uh, you've kind of caught them out i mean what's 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 the uh, response when you um when you yeah, do point point this out to them so it can be very varied and i think this is what's uh, such a useful tool for us because sometimes it is the case that these allegations have been made um, without companies' knowledge. Sometimes what we're doing is joining the dots between reports of, say, conditions at suppliers. And we're saying to, say, apparel brands, you know, you, you seem to be sourcing from this factory. Are you aware that there is an issue here? Um, you know, similarly, we've done a lot of work, um, particularly on, on Qatar and the Gulf on, um, operations of, of hotels. And, you know, hotels rely often on outsourced services. So we will approach them to say, you know, there have been these allegations that, a particular security company you use has not been paying workers or perhaps um, outsourced cleaners have been paid very high recruitment fees to get their jobs. And in that sense, what we're doing is taking those concerns sort of further up 
um, the value chain to companies who, you know, not only have responsibility um, and should be concerned about that, 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 but also who who have the leverage to investigate, to set standards, to learn from those cases, um, and then improve practices more broadly. All right, let's talk about Qatar now. Um, one of the claims made by Qatar and FIFA and supported by labor organizations like the ILO was that the World Cup had gone a very long way towards protecting the rights of migrant workers. And certainly there were gains. The kafala system that tied workers to one employer was scrapped. New laws put into place about workers' pay, living conditions, and so on. So would you agree that progress was made? Well, we'd certainly agree that progress has been made in, in some respects. Um, you know, it's very clear, as you say, that there have been these reforms to certain areas of the labour law. Um, but I think what we're concerned about most now, and, and this is, I would say, similar across civil society, is that while those changes that have been made on paper are not necessarily being implemented properly or consistently. So they are not affecting, you know, real change across the board for migrant workers who most need those. And there are several points where, uh, you know, it was evident from the testimony that was gathered for our report uh, where workers did not have access to those rights. So, for example, you know, one of the key findings was that very few workers said that they were able to change jobs as they wished. And this was, you know, intended to be a huge, a huge step forward. Um, you know, you referred to Kafala being scrapped and that referred to the, the fact that workers should now be able to change jobs choose their employment, leave the country without the permission of their current employer. And yet, you know, it was very clearly um, an ongoing issue for, for many workers who were interviewed. So a, a sort of a minority were entirely unaware of, of the new system. Most were aware, but they cited, you know, particular barriers to being able to actually change jobs in practice. So, you know, they were required to submit um, sort of paperwork. They were required to make payments. Uh, some people said that they they would need to pay a bribe and they couldn't afford that to, to officials, that is. And so, you know, the reality very much is that the employer must be willing to let workers leave work for, for them to actually change employer. In that instance, you know, another example is recruitment fee charging. Um, this has historically been a huge issue of workers, migrant workers paying either extortionate or, or simply illegal fees to obtain work. And almost every worker that was spoken to had made payments of, in some cases, up to thousands of dollars. And this is something that is actually, it has been banned in Qatar itself, but that does not address the fact that workers are still paying agencies, paying individuals um, in their own countries before they have arrived. And employers in destination countries who are employing these workers are not doing enough to find out whether they've paid uh, recruitment fees and reimburse them for any charges. That should be standard practice and a minimum from business. And I think what's sort of shown there is that there is um, a sort of reliance on the fact that you know, changing the laws alone will affect change for workers, unfortunately, it's clear that many of those issues still remain um, for workers on a regular basis, is what we were told um, by migrants for, for our report. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, a gap between what's on the books, what was said, and what was actually happening to many migrant workers, as your uh, research uh, and interviews indicated. As you said, you did you interviewed 78 workers were you at all surprised at what they told you at this gap that, that became pretty apparent once you started the interview? Did that surprise you? I think, you know, one of the key themes that came out that was particularly shocking, but which I think then meant that we weren't surprised at the other findings, was that, you know, across the board, workers told us 
that they were, you know, they experienced fear, that they felt intimidated in the workplace, that they mistrusted employers, and that, you know, their workplaces were this sort of environment where they were not able to, to voice concerns. And I think that what that then fed into, you know, it was very clear that workers cannot access remedy if they experience labour rights um, abuse. You know, they, they weren't able to speak up, certainly without a very real risk of reprisal from employers. So most most workers actually did say that they had raised grievances, you know, anything from uh, concerns about living conditions to, you know, more uh, sort of systemic issues around non-payment of wages, for example, and of those people, 18 people experienced retaliation from their employer. And that looked, again, a range of, of different steps taken by employers to silence workers. Things like failing to deploy workers for shift work so they wouldn't necessarily get paid because it was dependent on, on um, deployment. Um, to kind of more, much more sort of serious steps, including um, complaining to the authorities, workers were detained for, for asking for their rights and deported. And I think it really underscored that in, in an environment where workers also don't have the right to representation, to form unions, employers have to take those steps or ensure that, you know, the workforces at suppliers and subcontractors are creating environments uh, and atmospheres where workers can speak up. And I think that uh, sort of led on to the, the second so the main point that I think I found most surprising, which was the extent to which workers very much felt that their workplaces were an atmosphere where employers were completely divorced from the reality of the working conditions. So not just that workers were experiencing labour abuse, but the sort of the disconnect. It was clear that employers just weren't doing any uh, checks on working conditions to engage workers directly. Um, you know, of those 78 people, only minorities, very, very small minorities, were asked um, anything about things like recruitment fee charging, which, as I say, is a, a systemic issue. It's a historical issue. It's something which all employers should assume um, workers are at risk of, of having experienced. And yet, you know, even when workers were were outsourced to kind of other workplaces, those large multinationals, particularly uh, who should have been aware that the, of these risks, were not engaging with workers at all. Um, and so the the sort of distance between management and the, the kind of daily experience of of workers was was huge. Um, and so in that in that respect, I think unfortunately, broadly speaking, we were not surprised by what we heard. Um, it is the same story time and time again, not just kind of over the past few years, but actually the stories that were told by each of the workers, the, the kind of repetition and the patterns um, that, that we heard, you know, throughout the testimony was was really quite evident. You know, it's it's a bit discouraging because a great play was made by the Qatari government, by FIFA, and as I said, by organizations like ILO that that huge steps have been taken. Um, and yet, here we are, you interviewed 78 people, and I believe you said 18 described uh, being put into positions of, of, of pressure, and, and indeed, in some cases, threatening positions. But let's go, first of all, to FIFA. Um, you say that FIFA has serious questions to answer. What are the questions you want answered? And what has been the response thus far from uh, FIFA? So, I mean, in terms of sort of our our engagement with um, FIFA and, and FIFA's broader engagement with civil society, you know, they they are an organisation which has, uh, you know, released regular statements, has provided responses to specific um, 
cases that we have taken to them. They have reiterated commitments made. And, and most recently, they have confirmed uh, now that they will be commissioning a, an independent assessment on, on the steps that they have taken thus far to uh, obtain remedy for workers in the context of the, the World Cup last year. But again, you know, that commitment, that, that was in March of this year. That is four months after the end of a World Cup, which had a, a, over a decade lead up um, in a context where labour rights risks even the sort of most bare superficial checks would have shown a huge risk for migrant workers as a direct result of this this tournament. And so what we have not, you know, seen um, is a kind of concrete decision and commitment to to fund um, that sort of remedy that is needed for workers who are still out of pocket um, as a result of the labour abuse that they experienced. And I think, unfortunately, you know, they, they want to do this uh, assessment Last May, so May of 2022, before the World Cup, Amnesty International actually commissioned a, a similar study that has already showed that FIFA had not met its responsibilities under international human rights standards. And so it is it is difficult to see this sort of latest effort as anything other than, um, you know, another effort to kick the can further down the road, because fundamentally there is no established kind of accessible scheme currently to provide remedy to workers. And that is the key um, the key remaining question that we we have. That is really, uh, I think, a black mark against FIFA that given the, the advance notice, given the stated claims, that there still is no system in place that will deal with individuals or the, or the broader issue of exploitation. I was, I was struck by some of the quotes from the workers that, that you interviewed. Mm. Uh, this from a security guard who was recruited from Pakistan. We were given cards from FIFA that had numbers on it, we would call. However, as soon as the FIFA World Cup ended, all those numbers went nowhere. And it seems that FIFA packed up shop as soon as the World Cup ended and didn't care about those who were left behind. I mean, it sounds that FIFA just simply walked away. Is, is that the case? Well, I think the first thing to acknowledge there is for this gentleman who spoke to researchers, that was his experience. Uh, you know, he did feel abandoned by FIFA very clearly. And I think we need to firstly accept that. I think more broadly, it was very clear from the testimonies that, you know, actually most, most workers did speak quite positively about their involvement in the World Cup, you know, big international event, really exciting. And that that's something that came through quite strongly. But it contrasted pretty heavily with a couple of other things. I mean, the first was that this, uh, the finding that only a, a minority of workers were even aware of a grievance mechanism that FIFA had set up and was and had established and were administering through the tournament. And it was pretty shocking to find that um, only a minority had even heard of that mechanism. Not a single person had actually used it, even though every single person interviewed did cite um, at least one or more types of labour abuse they'd experienced. And this was a grievance mechanism frequently referred to by FIFA in all of those, those sort of statements I said, you know, that, that we have received. But it was demonstrably ineffective and inaccessible, according to the workers who were spoken to for our report. And I think the second, um, the second sort of contrast to that excitement of the World Cup is that several of the workers interviewed were clearly coming home or had already returned home, actually, by the time they were interviewed uh, with unresolved labour issues. You know, they still had not been paid. They still had not had um, recruitment fee charges reimbursed. And of course, the longer that that happens, the, the kind of... Um, that the widening of the gap between when workers are in country and, and are experiencing something and it's ongoing and when they, they come home, the, the sort of 
lessening is that the chance that that will actually be resolved for them. Um, you know, those are workers facing serious long term negative impacts um, as a result of, of the World Cup, while FIFA is you know, already looking towards 2026 and an even larger projected profit than they walked away from Qatar 2022 with. Yeah, I'm just trying to recall what the profit was. I mean, we're talking about hundreds, hundreds, of, it, hundreds yeah. of millions. I mean, by the end of 2022, the profit was seven and a half billion US dollars. Uh, and it is already projected to be higher for 2026. And so, you know, it cannot be a successful start to the next World Cup cycle while these issues are unresolved and ongoing for workers in, in Qatar 2022. It's staggering, isn't it? That you have workers who have returned home, still haven't been paid. FIFA walks away with profits of $7.5 billion. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Isabel Archer from the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice in the Middle East and North Africa, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Let me ask you about another quote from the uh, from your report. This is from a cut from Nepal, which I think points to the dereliction on uh, the part of the Qatari government. Here's the quote. When I registered the complaints at the labor court asking to change employer, nothing happened. The manager said that the labor court officer is his friend. So, have the Qataris too effectively walked away from their responsibilities to the workers? I mean, I think what this points to again is is another example of the kind of barriers to remedy um, and representation that workers in Qatar face. Um, you know, our focus at the Resource Centre is to highlight private sector responsibility, and often uh, we are doing that in contexts where. Yeah, as you say, there is a shortcoming, a kind of dereliction on on the part of government and the state. And so I think it, it does remain to be seen how labour reforms that have been won on paper are taken forward and implemented. I think there is still a real concern that there could be rollback for workers in Qatar without the kind of, you know, proper, sincere, long, long term, sustainable efforts to, to embed them. I think one of the kind of um, more surprising aspects of the the media coverage during the tournament was actually how long the focus did did remain on human rights uh not just labor rights but um alongside the kind of sport coverage but i think you know very acutely aware that there really was only that sort of relatively small window to have international attention on on qatar and, and effect change and i think there is definitely a concern that there could be rollback for workers now uh now that the world cup is over and now that that pressure is is off the the Qatari state. It certainly feels like that. I mean, have you approached the Qatari government with the, with the reports? Have you had a response from them? If you have approached them, so we have had um, a response from the World Cup organisers, the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy. I mean, I think that the the response is very much in in kind of a similar vein to responses we have had previously. A reference to kind of World Cup workers. I think one of the main points that we made in the report was that. The workers who were interviewed were, you know, among them were those employed by contractors for the World Cup. But actually, the the World Cup tournament, you know, it, it had implications that were far beyond just the the sort of um, minority of migrant workers who were sort of formally employed as um, 
as employees of FIFA contractors. And so in that sense, you know, the, the effects of the tournament, the sort of um, huge expansion for, say, hospitality, uh, the hotel sector to allow for the hosting of this went far beyond um, just the, those kinds of workers. And I think that, you know, that is a key point. You know, this is this is uh, not a tournament where you can sort of isolate the effects on, on one small group of workers who can be protected by by labor standards that were indeed you know higher than for um for workers across across the country as a whole but i think that it's it's important to recognize the contribution of of all migrant workers to to the tournament effort you know there were people employed who will have come into contact with teams with fans you know across sectors transport sectors you know picking people up dropping them at their hotels greeting them at their hotels you know serving them in in, in at dinner if they went out to eat um, and, and so I think that that's something which we really tried to sort of underscore. And that's where it's, it's absolutely essential that companies across any, any company operating across Qatar, um, you know, recognizes that, uh, that link and the association, the risk that, that was posed to workers. But, but Isabel, when you sort of raise the issue of people not being paid or people being prevented from changing jobs, what did the, uh, Qataris say to that? Did they, engage and say we're going to do something about that we're going to look into it or do they just kind of brush it off i mean i think that again it it's it's a trend that the the promises that have kind of been made i would say that we've had um, in disclosure directly to us are are generally go go quite to, to superficial levels um you know it's 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 not that we can necessarily hold companies or the World Cup organisers to account against the, the kind of statements that have been made, mainly because actually I, I think that the bar that's offered is often very low. You know, the commitments from private sector are often superficial at best. We don't hear necessarily kind of in-depth in steps being taken to investigate abuse, commitments to, to really um, make sure that workers are at the centre of, of checks, of due diligence processes, we don't see sort of commitments to, to really effective kind of meaningful ongoing engagement with workers. And again, just to reiterate, this is a context where you know, unions are, are absent. And so it's really beholden on any company to, to make sure that, um, you know, they, they understand how their workers are being treated. And so, so in that respect, I think that um, it, it, it is important to kind of consider that companies have responsibilities beyond, um, beyond just what, what is required in the, the new labor laws mm, yeah and i i'm just wondering though as well beyond publishing the report what can be done uh, do you think that fifa or the qatari government uh, feel any embarrassment that promises made and then not kept do you think they'll just kind of put it put it aside kick it down the road and and continue uh to present a facade really that the World Cup in Doha represented a significant breakthrough for migrant rights. I think I think that is the concern. Um, you know, we mentioned it earlier. This sort of com latest commitment from earlier this year from from FIFA that there would be a study, another assessment um, to understand you know responsibilities. There have already been assessments. Uh, you know, prior to prior to the tournament actually taking place, the risks were well identified, um, and there are still. Uh, outstanding individual cases of workers who did not receive what they were owed, asked for that, and you know, in some in some cases, paid the ultimate price. They were deported or are still detained. 
it was six months after the the final that we released our report. And so many of those uh, workers who spoke to researchers had not received remedy. So we certainly are, you know, looking to FIFA to take a lead on that kind of concrete redress. And as I say, you know, there is concern that with the World Cup over, the kind of media pressure, the international scrutiny has moved on. But I think it is unclear where Qatar goes from here. You know, as, as, as we said, by the time the tournament rolled around over a decade in, in lead, leading up to kickoff, it's clear that many issues are still very much um, alive and kicking. And there is concern that without that kind of added pressure, these reforms will not be deepened. And just to go back to the, the point about the promises that are being made, you know, I, I actually think that often when we have contacted companies, in it, there are rare, rarer instances where uh, companies have really engaged with ourselves, with the, the sources um, which have published these sort of allegations of human rights abuse that are connected to them. But actually the, the kind of the promises, the commitments that they that these companies have made really don't go close to addressing issues concretely. And I think that that, that is something which is still missing, that sort of fundamental first step by private sector to really accept responsibility because without accepting responsibility, there can no, you know, we, we will not be able to progress to a point where, where workers who experience abuse will be able to access remedy reliably each and every time in a timely fashion. And I think that that, that is what is so devastating at the moment for workers who have not yet received redress. Just finally, um, well, let, let me ask you this. First of all, you mentioned that uh, people uh, have been detained uh, deported? Uh, are, are people mm. still being detained? Yeah, yeah. So we know, um, you know, a couple of different cases that um, have been documented recently by um, partners of the Resource Centre, you know, a particularly prominent one, for example, is the case of Stark Security. This is a security company which is uh, alleged to have committed labour abuse against its workers. This is a, a case which has been looked into quite heavily by NGO uh, Equidem. And we know of three workers still detained um, as of this month in in Qatar because they were protesting their, their you know their rights um, to, to to obtain wages. So this is very much this is not a historical issue. This is ongoing. You know, as I'm speaking to you today. You know, Isabel, just just to finish up, there was this hope that Qatar, with the World Cup, would lead the way in doing something about the awful treatment of migrants in the Gulf and and the wider Middle East. It hasn't happened. Is there any reason to feel encouragement or after all the PR hoopla, are we just back to business as usual and the exploitation continues? So I think, you know, as I kind of briefly mentioned, we have seen individual instances of better and and even good practice by companies, um, often multinationals who have operations in Qatar and, and the broader Gulf. Um, you know, they have more effectively and um you know, they've acknowledged their, their human rights responsibilities. They are engaging with civil society. They are recognising the sort of restrictions on migrant workers' um, participation in those kinds of processes. And I think that, that it is important to acknowledge those. But I would say that those cases are kind of few and far between, which is why, you know, a key takeaway and recommendation from our report was that businesses must do more than they are, are doing, significantly more than they are currently doing to find and stamp out abuse proactively. And that's got to be true, not just for sort of directly employed workers, but also for subcontracted workforces, um, you know, workers employed by suppliers, setting standards, reviewing standards on an ongoing basis. 
you know, meeting their their obligations to to conduct sort of really meaningful human rights due diligence on their business partnerships. Uh, several workers for for interview for our report were employed um, by subsidiaries or um, suppliers to multinationals, and you know it's clear that no one was checking on on their uh, their working conditions. And so I think again, just to, to reiterate that the abuse it goes far beyond just uh, those sort of fifty five companies that were represented in the testimony. It goes far beyond uh, the sort of official FIFA contractors. Um, and is really reflective of the fact of, you know, there is a long way to go for the private sector as a whole in the region. Yes, there have been sort of individual steps forward, but I think for, for there to be greater progress, there has to be wider um, and more meaningful engagement um, with companies' you know, responsibilities to respect human rights before we can really say that there has been a hugely positive impact. But I think it is always a case, you know, that we are... Uh, it's this sort of elastic band uh, analogy. You know, we are stretching forwards and it's it's really important to recognise those wins when they occur. But unfortunately, we're not not there yet. Mm. You know, it strikes me, too, that uh, here in the UK, there's lots of businesses, big corporations uh, who are very keen to do or are already doing business in the Gulf uh, and, and the wider Middle East. Pressure brought to bear on those companies to say, hey, look, uh, you know, this is not a good situation. This is not Absolutely. a good look for you. Absolutely. And I mean, among um, the sort of key industries that we've we've been engaging with, for example, the, the hotel sector, there are certainly UK headquartered companies uh, and companies headquartered across Europe and North America um, who we are engaging with. And a large part of that is to articulate to them, you know, here are issues uh, happening in your value chain, in your operations overseas. You must ensure that you are c- communicating standards clearly to all your business partners. Um, and I can say that, you know, currently at the Resource Centre, we are um, conducting some outreach to, which includes to hotel companies, two of whom are, are headquartered in the US, two of whom are headquartered in, in Europe regarding uh, another case of labor abuse of, of security guard well facilities management security guards in Qatar and that's that's happening uh, now and it is another example where you know companies must must be doing their checks on how they're operating um, overseas will you, will you name those companies we, we will be naming them we'll be publishing that in a couple of weeks um, and we'll certainly be naming all the all the companies that we approach. Well, we'll keep an eye on that and it'll be interesting to see what those companies' responses are. And and I thank you, Isabel, for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Isabel Archer. Isabel is Senior Researcher, Labour and Migrant Worker Rights at the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since we launched three years ago, it's been listened to nearly 150,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You'll no doubt have noticed that we bring you the podcasts with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Isabel.
Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 150 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. Thank you.